What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Now, one thing I want to do on the podcast a little bit more often going forward, including in this episode, is to bring on subject matter experts, people who are really good at a particular thing so they can share their knowledge with all of us. Today, that expert is Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob is a serial entrepreneur and a Y Combinator alumnus. He's also a software engineer and a sales expert. And he is perhaps most famously known for being the author of a book called The Mom Test, which is kind of the definitive guide for how to talk to your customers effectively as a founder. Rob and I were already mid-conversation, so I'm just going to jump in where we left off. But if you find this episode useful and you'd like to see me interview more experts, feel free to ping me on Twitter. I'm at C.S. Allen and send me some suggestions. Without further ado, Rob Fitzpatrick. Okay, why should founders care about talking to their customers? Why is it even something they should be spending time on? So before I answer that, which I will, I just want to say that there's two parts to this. There's two challenges you got to deal with. There's the kind of the willingness or the emotional challenge. Like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to engage in this scary way with strangers uh, or almost strangers, or I'm going to expose my idea. And then the other part of it is like the actual hands-on skill of running these conversations properly and asking good questions. You know, you need to be willing to get out there, but that's not enough because if you go out there like I did, I tried so hard, you know, I was miserable. I wanted to be coding, but I was like, I have to do this for my team, for my investors, for myself. It's like two years full-time. All I did was talk to customers and I was so miserable. And then we went out of business anyway and I was pissed off, right? Because I'm like, man, like if I'm going to suffer this much, I wanted to at least work. And what I eventually learned, you know, leading into my next company is like, you got to do it right. You know, these conversations can easily go off track and just trying to talk to like, not all feedback is good feedback. Uh, That's an important thing to realize. And we'll talk about how to do it properly, I'm sure. As for why it's going to benefit you and why it's worth overcoming these learning curves, emotional and skill. It's that it ends up acting like a programming superpower. Uh, For example, early in my first company's history, we kept building features based on market research or building features based on strategy or intuition. And we might spend like four or six months building something. We'd launch it. People don't like it quite as much as we had hoped. That's a very expensive way to explore an idea space, right? Especially if you've got a team. I mean, even by yourself. And if you're working nights and weekends, like development is slow, right? So if you lose four months of development, that's such a setback. And it really clicked for me when I was having a conversation with someone and I'm like, wow, that just saved me four months. You know, this 30 minute conversation just saved me four months of development time. That's incredible. And so that's when I started to get excited about it. Another piece that made me excited emotionally was when I realized that customers actually enjoy having these conversations if you do them respectfully. When I first started, I was in very much a sleazy salesman mode where it's like, I'm taking your time and you're getting nothing in return. Screw you. And that made me feel guilty because that wasn't the way I wanted to interact with strangers, you know, or my customers. And over time, I realized actually it's valuable for them as well. If it's the worst part of their day, they love talking about it. And over time, you build up this expertise and you can offer real value back to them in return just from your perspective on the problem, how other people are dealing with it. Another way it clicks, which is valuable, is... You know, you've all launched like a landing page, right? And you're like, okay, do people want this? How am I going to market this? How am I going to get people to see this? Like you try the product hunt, you try all this stuff and it doesn't quite work, but you don't know why it didn't work. Like, is it the way you describe the product, the copy, the value proposition? Is it the way you built the website? Is it the user experience of the app? It's very hard to debug that if you don't have any contact with the people. You can tell if it worked because you're rich. But when it hasn't worked, you you don't know why it hasn't worked. Whereas if you're talking to people, you can figure all those things out before the launch. You know exactly what the tagline should be because the customers have told you. You're like, hey, why do you care so much about this? Why does this even matter to you? And they just tell you. And you go, okay, take that, put that exactly on my landing page. That's my value proposition. That's my advertising copy. That's my marketing tagline. There's so much stuff you can figure out and it gives you a lot more confidence to stick with it. Because I see a lot of people give up on their ideas too soon. They like launch an MVP and it doesn't work. And they go, well, I tested it. It didn't work. And they give up. That's wrong. That's always wrong. Because all that proves is that that particular version of the product didn't work the particular way you marketed it. Whereas if you've talked to people first in person, you're like, okay, that MVP didn't work. But I know for a fact, 1000% they care. I know this matters. And that makes it for me a lot easier to keep throwing away versions of products 
and looking for the correct solution. So it helps with everything, with motivation, with language, with features. Like it, it, to me, it, my programming got so much more efficient and more satisfying once I learned how to talk to customers properly. I love that point that you know you and I were both developers. We both love writing code, but it's actually way more efficient to iterate through these conversations than it is to iterate through months and months of writing the wrong code, <laughs> building the wrong features. And I think you know early on in your in your sort of life as a founder, you're just excited to build something. You want to get something out there. And it seems like talking to customers is going to be a waste of time. But for all the reasons that you've stated, it's not. How early should you be talking to customers? Should you be talking to them as you're coming up with your idea, before you come up with an idea, before you write any code? Or should that be something that happens later? It's important to understand that there's different types of companies. And talking to customers has different value depending on the type of company you're building. So if you're building a, a phone game or any sort of video game, really, like the classic, like it's not a sharp pain. It's kind of a commodity product. People love new games. Like if you give them fun and it's better, they will love that. But there's not a lot of customer or market risk there. It's all execution risk. Like my background's in game design. And with games, what you try to do is you try you start with a prototype and you try to prototype the core mechanic and make it crunchy. Like does the core interaction feel good? And so you lead with that simple prototype. Obviously, you don't build the whole game world or do all of the art or anything. You start with the core mechanic. Like for Diablo, it's clicking on a monster and seeing it explode in a, a loot pinata. You like get that right and you keep working that until it feels crunchy and satisfying. And then you go, okay. And then you start expanding out from there. And that's also true for what Peter Thiel would call his like 10x product improvements, like product innovations. So Uber was an example of this. To some extent, Airbnb was an example of this. Pinterest, certainly. These are cases where you couldn't talk to someone and be like, hey, would you like to see photos in rectangles around topics? Like that's not really a customer interview you can have. So Pinterest, that type of consumer idea is very difficult to prove in advance purely through customer conversations. So there you need to lead with the prototype a bit more. Now, you'd still like to understand people, right? You might have some conversations to be like, hey, how do you like get inspiration online? right? It's open-ended, but it's not going to prove or disprove your idea. It's just going to give you a foundation of empathy and understanding. Now, at the other side of the spectrum, you've got things which are solving an explicit unsolved problem, stuff like enterprise software, stuff like people talk them about the pain relievers, the hair on fire problems, the this is costing my business money. This is causing me misery. I need this dealt with right now. When that's the case, you can learn everything you need from a conversation before you've written a single line of code. So the conversations are valuable in both cases. I would feel like I was going to battle without a sword if I wasn't allowed to talk to my customers. It's not like you can always prove everything just by talking. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think most people listening to this podcast, most indie hackers are probably building the latter kind of business, the kind of business where they're trying to solve a specific hair on fire problem for customers who are willing to pay for it. And we're having these kinds of conversations early on probably makes a lot more sense than, than having those kinds of conversations for a game or something. Absolutely. Uh, it's actually one of the reasons I choose those types of ideas now, because I want to be able to prove them in advance. And yeah. choosing something that's a sharp problem, it just de-risks the whole business because you, you don't need to build it first. It's great. It has so many, so many benefits. I think it's super important if you're an indie hacker as well, because you're not raising money from venture capitalists. You don't probably have a super long runway. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. you might be working nights and weekends that you could be spending time with your friends or your family or on your hobbies. So it's super important to not waste your time on one of these <laughs> like ideas. You have no clue if it's going to work. Oh, you, you asked how early to start. Um, yeah. And I would say like start. And one of the reasons to start talking to people like ASAP immediately you want to be able to get active users in your product as early as it's able to support them. And if you make your product ready to support them, and then you go looking for the users, it feels like you're not getting anything done, right? And so maybe a week passes or two weeks pass and you go, you know what? Screw this. I'm done waiting. Like this is slowing me down. This talking to customer stuff is stupid. It's a waste of time. I'm just going to build the next features. I know what needs to happen. You keep repeating that decision over and over and it's sensible every time you make it. And soon you've wasted two years going down a rabbit hole and you're screwed. Uh, and you're like, okay, next time I'm going to do it properly. And so by talking to people early, by forcing yourself to do that, it means that you have them on reserve when you're ready to use them. And I do this for everything. I do it for my books as well. Like as soon as I have a book idea and I start writing, I'm also starting to talk to my future potential readers 
to understand them, but also to line them up so that as soon as I've got a manuscript for them to look at, boom, I'm getting feedback from day one instead of having to scramble for it. Super, super valuable. And then oftentimes also I realize I'm just dead wrong, like dead wrong, completely wrong. Like I had this idea once for uh, like a CRM for investors to manage their inbound. uh, It was like kind of an email CRM hybrid to manage their inbound deal flow. This was like 10 years ago. I thought it was a pretty good idea at the time. And so it was one of these ideas that like woke me up in the middle of the night. You know, I'm like, I'm a genius. This is it. (laughs) It's going to be incredible. Because, you know, I was so stressed about email and I figured the investors must get a hundred times more than me. So I set up a conversation for that day. You know, I I found a friendly investor who I happened to kind of know through my network. And this is important in terms of actually doing the conversations right. You never want to pitch your idea. If at all possible, in the early stages, find a different excuse to talk to them and then just ask them how they already deal with it and why they do it that way. So I set up a, I was, hey, you know, it's been forever. Let's catch up. He goes, okay, yeah, I'll meet you for coffee. And uh, just during small talk, you know, I'm like, hey, man, email is killing me. It's killing me. I'm so miserable. You must get so much more email than I do. How do you stay alive? How do you deal with this? All these inbound leads, you know? And so here I've brought up the topic, right? We already have an excuse to be talking. I've brought up the topic and then I pushed it straight back onto his life. And this is the best way to do your early stage customer conversations. They're not about your idea. They're about the customer's life and how they're already dealing with that problem. And he starts talking and I can just see, I've got dollar signs in my eyes, right? He goes, oh my gosh, email, the inbound leads. We get like a thousand inbound leads a a week. It's a nightmare, you know? No one could go through all of them. It's a mess. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is good. I'm getting validated, going to be rich. And I'm like, well, talk me through it. And this is another uh, technique you want to be doing. Whenever someone gives you a generic answer, you go, tell me more about that. Talk me through that. How does that work? Like, what do you actually do? And he goes, oh, well... Actually, to be honest, uh, our associates get most of the email. They delete 90% straight off. We got a whole team of them doing that. I probably only see 100 a week and maybe 10 of them look good to me. So uh, I write their company name down on a post-it along with the founder's phone number, put it on my wall right there. He he pointed up to like a little cluster of post-its on his wall. They're probably 10 or 20. He goes, once a week, I give them a call, see how they're doing. If I don't like them anymore, I throw away their post-it. I was like, man, that's old school, but it actually sounds like a pretty good system. Yeah, super simple. And he thought for a minute, and he'd been so agitated about email. He thought for a minute, and he sort of relaxed, and he goes, he goes, actually, it is a pretty good system. <laughs> you know, and then he's like, so what did you want to talk about? And I'm kind of like, uh, you know, you've just destroyed my hopes and dreams. <laughs> Never mind. But that's great, because like, I'd save my time. And I ended up deciding not to pursue it. But you might have easily said, like, aha, the people with the problem are not the partners, it's the associates. I need to go talk to the associates, not the partners figure out if I can make their lives easier or whatever. There's other ways. Like just because you get a negative signal doesn't mean you need to give up. It's like driving, you know, and there's like a tree across the road. You don't go, oh, I need to go home. You go, oh, I need to reverse a little bit and find another route to my destination. And that's the attitude you want to take into finding out that your idea doesn't work. It's just like this version of the idea doesn't work. And then you reverse a bit and find a way around. I love that story because it illustrates one of the big reasons why you should be talking to customers. I think it's very easy as a founder, especially if you're a first-time founder, to become overly confident in your ideas as they exist in your head. You're like, oh, this idea is going to work for sure. I'm so confident. I'm so excited about it. And it's easy to underestimate like the difference between reality and the world that exists in your head. And you actually <laughs> talk to real people and ask them about their lives and what's going on with them, you realize like there's this huge discrepancy. And oftentimes, I talk to more experienced founders, and they're significantly less confident about their ideas than the inexperienced founders. Yeah, it's uh, it's humbling. You know, you, you can be so confident. You've done all these business model canvases. You check the market size. You've like, you know, mocked up the landing page. You're all pumped, and then you're like, oh, literally, no one in the world cares at all about this. <laughs> like, they they just don't care. And sometimes it can be confusing too because they can say they care, but they're just straight up lying to you, especially about aspirational topics like health and the environment and sustainability and recycling and all of this stuff. Um, people like security, people like, yeah, our business really cares about security. It's a top problem. It's like, oh, what do you do about uh, people using their personal devices? Literally nothing. Oh, what do you do about <laughs> this? Absolutely nothing. It's, but like, you're not going to be like, do you care about security? How important is it? And they go, My, our business doesn't care at all about security. Like, we don't care. Our customer's data means nothing to us. Like, they just can't say that. And equally, no one goes like, I don't care about well-being. Like, I don't care about the environment. So sometimes with those uh, like aspirational topics, you need to be incredibly skeptical about what you're being told by your customers and really, really bring it back down to their current behavior. Like if someone goes, I care about the environment, 
Like, I'm not going to be like, great, my carbon credits business is going to work. I'm going to be like, prove it to me. Show me what you're already doing. Show me how much money you're already spending. Show me how much effort you're already putting toward this. Show me what you've tried that's failed. Like, I want to see hard evidence that you're already doing something. Because if you're not, I think this is all just fluff. It's fascinating how much people lie, sometimes even inadvertently. One of the things I've noticed is how much people will complain about things that aren't problems. Like people will loudly complain about how much they hate Slack and how distracted they are. But they're doing <laughs> absolutely zero to change it. And it turns out they actually love Slack and use it all the time. And they just like complaining about something because it's easy to talk <laughs> about. And it's easy as an entrepreneur to get really like tricked to think, oh, this is a real problem. People complain about it all the time. But like the reality is it's not a problem worth solving. I mean, the willingness to, to, to actually change things. Like, And one of the reasons that starting, starting with the pitch is such a problem is that it multiplies the lies you get by like a factor of 10 or 100. Like if I go to you and I'm like, uh, I'm like, all right, I got a product. It's going to make you live 10 years longer. You know, you're going to get skinny. You're going to get sexy. You're going to get laid. You're going to feel great. You're going to be full of energy. You know, it's like that you have to come in for treatment three times a week. It's like this pill. It hurts a bit. It's going to wipe you out for 20 minutes. But like, you know, whatever, you move on with your life, right? Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, yeah, I want to live 10 years longer. I want to get laid. And then you're like, my product is a gym. Come on in. And they're like, I, I don't want that. <laughs> it's like, but you just said you want like all the benefits, you know, but you can lead people to anything if you start pitching because um, you're like exposing your ego. They want to support you in your dream. They don't want to like, you know, slam your ambition. So you've really got to resist that pitching instinct. You're like, the whole thing of customer conversations is trying to avoid all these compliments and like ego driven lies and these like little annoyances that people aren't actually motivated to change and try to get to the core underneath. Like what are they already doing or not doing and why or why not? And you just keep like, well, what are you already doing? How have you dealt with that? Like, what have you searched for? Can you talk me through how that works? Like those sorts of questions are real, where the real gold is, at least in the early stages. So we're talking about the fact that generally speaking, it's not good enough just to talk to your customers. There's actually specific techniques and strategies you can use to make sure those customer conversations are productive. And in your book, you've got kind of a framework that you call the mom test, which is three rules for how to talk to customers. Number one, which we've been talking about, is to focus on their life instead of immediately bringing up your idea. Number two is to ask for specifics from their past instead of opinions about what they want or what they might do in the future. That's basically how you get lied to. And number three is talk less and listen more. So let's get into some specifics here about how you phrase these questions. Let's say I do the, the kind of default indie hacker thing. I talk to somebody about what I'm working on, and then I ask them, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Why isn't that a good way to start a customer conversation? I don't know if this is a thing, but it's something you'll notice. It's like, you can offload the burden of truth onto the other person. So when you say, like, do you think this is a good idea? What you're doing is you're offloading the burden of truth onto them. You're forcing them to tell you the hard truth. That's an emotionally draining task for them. It's like when someone asks you if they're pretty, you're like, I don't know, man. Like, don't ask me that. That's awkward. Like, it's an emotionally draining question because, like, you're forced to, like, oh, gosh, is their ego involved? Are they going to cry? It, it's just like you're asking to get missed. You're putting them in a difficult situation. Whereas if you go like, let's say you're building an email tool and, and one version of this conversation is like, hey, I'm building a new email tool that does this and this and this. Do you think it's a good idea? Would you use it? Would you buy it? That pushes all the emotional burden onto the other person. And they're meant to deal with all their emotions and somehow deal with the biases themselves. And they're untrained and they don't really care. And they're meant to tell you the truth. That's super hard. The other way to do it is to take that responsibility yourself where you go like, okay, Forget about my idea for now, right? Let me just try to understand you and how you already deal with email and like what you do and don't do. And then I, as the entrepreneur, I'm going to take the responsibility for turning that into an insight from which I can take a visionary leap to my product. Like you're not trying to collect feature requests and you're not trying to build a product by committee. What you're trying to do is understand the goals and frustrations and lives of your users so that you can take a more accurate visionary leap or a visionary leap from a more accurate foundation. Mm -hmm. And you can still be wrong, right? Like you can get a good foundation and then leap in the wrong direction. But like, hey, that's life. That's entrepreneurship. But you, your foundation is still valid because you still understand your customers. So you go, well, version one did not work at all. And then, you, but you still got your foundation of understanding. So you can try a different visionary leap to like a different product version or a different way of dealing with it or a different business model or whatever. So, I mean, is it a good idea? It just asks too much of the other person, right? That's not their job. Your, your job is the entrepreneur. It's your job to figure out if it's good, a good idea. 
All they can do is tell you about their life. That's the only information they have access to. Plus, people are just so optimistic about the future. If you go, even if you go like, hey, would you pay for this? They will go, I would definitely pay for that. I would pay $50 per month for that for sure. Then you go, great. And you launch it and you build it and you spend a year and your life savings. Then you're like, hey, it's ready. And they're like, "Ah, actually, I don't need it. (laughs) You're like, what? They're like, yeah, I didn't really think about how much of a pain it would be to change my whole workflow. I have to learn a new tool. I have to install it, deal with the security thing. I don't know. It just, ah, I'm fine. I'm fine. You're like, ah, you just wasted a year of my life, right? But that was your mistake because you put the burden on them. You expected them to tell you the truth instead of you taking responsibility for finding the truth. And as a side point, like never ask people if they would pay hypothetical money. Either make your own decision based on what they're already doing or ask them for actual money. Uh, Hypothetical money means nothing. Yeah, these are some great points, especially the point about founders asking customers to do their job for them. Like Nobody's going to be able to tell you if your idea is good or you've got a great business. That's your job to work out all those variables. (laughs) That's an incredibly complex question. And I've been in the other situation before plenty of times. People have asked me, hey, Cortland, would you pay for this? And I do exactly what you're describing. I'm optimistically <laughs> like, yeah, I think I would pay for it because I'm not going to sit around for an hour really thinking like, in yeah. detail about all the things that would get me to pay for it. And then the time comes around when they've launched and I'm like, you know what? Never mind. And it's not because you're mean. Like I do it as no, well. Like, I'm not try to trick people. In the moment, I legit – just like every day, I think I'm going to go to the gym and I never do. <laughs> like you know, every time a founder pitches me an awesome new product, I think I'm going to use it, but I never do. Just I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. But like all your customers are busy and doing stuff. So you need to kind of be able to navigate that. What's that quote like? Uh, like expecting other people to always use common sense. Is itself a failure of common sense? Yeah. It's like the same sort of deal. So there there are these questions that you shouldn't ask. You shouldn't ask, hey, is my idea good? You shouldn't ask, hey, would you pay for this? Or how much would you pay for this? Uh, What are some good questions that you should ask when you're telling people about your initial idea? So as you progress through a new idea, you're going to get increasing confidence, right? You're going to move from like, does anybody care at all through to like, which features should I build and which orders and which do I need for launch? And what should my pricing be? So it gets more specific as you go because you're building this foundation. Um, Why don't we talk about the early stage questions when your idea is still super nascent? So at the beginning, uh, it's like, do they care at all? And do they care sufficiently that they're going to be motivated to like bother learning about installing and learning a new piece of software, a new tool or whatever? So what I'm looking for there is I just want to explore how they feel about the problem. So, you know, give me a give me a problem space or an industry. How or something. about productivity software? Productivity software, great. So super aspirational also, right? Everyone thinks they want to be productive. They read a lot of productivity blogs, but they never actually do anything. Like they're just like being actively unproductive while trying to learn about this stuff. And so you talk to someone, you go, hey, do you care about productivity? These are bad questions, by the way. Don't do this. Hey, do you care about productivity? Yeah. How important is it to you? Very important. Oh, like, uh, would you be interested in tools that help make you more productive? Yes, I would. Like, okay, uh, if something could really help you get more work done, do you think that would be worth $10 a month to you? $50? Oh, yeah, $50 a month. My work's valuable. My early, It's like, boom, you've just destroyed yourself, right? You come out of that and you feel like you've been rigorous. But it's an enormous false positive. So a better questions are about what they're already doing and why. So you go, hey, you know, you pay any attention to productivity stuff. Do you care about that? Like a classification question. It's just like, am I talking to a potential customer? Mm-hmm. Or are they completely irrelevant? So if you're building a product for babies and you're like, hey, do you have a baby? And they go, no, you're not going to be like, well, imagine you did and let me pitch you something. <laughs> like, So the first question is just like, are they in my customer segment? And then after that, you go, great. Okay, I know they care about productivity. And if they don't care about productivity, you might ask a couple more questions to figure out why. Maybe they're like on the fence or that's an interesting segment. But once you realize they, they really don't care, just leave them be, right? Even if you've only been talking to them for like 30 seconds, the hour-long meeting is like the curse of customer development because most cust dev meetings take like five minutes. You really don't need an hour. So anyway, so you know they care and you go like, hey, well, what do you do about it? Like talk me through your habits at the moment. Like what tools do you use? And they'll tell you. And these sorts of questions, like talk me through it. What do you use right now? No one lies. Like the lies disappear. It's just a fact about their life. You are not exposing any ego. You're not putting any burden of truth on them. There's nothing emotionally difficult about them answering. They'll just be like, oh, I use this, this, this. Oh, what did you try before? Oh, I use this and this. Why did you switch away? Oh, because of this. Like, have you looked for any new alternatives to what you're currently using? No, I'm pretty happy. Okay. Like, they're pretty happy. Like, probably to me, they don't have an urgent problem. Whereas some people, you might ask that same series of questions. And these are all, what are you already doing and why? Talk me through it, that sort of thing. And they go, yeah, it's driving me freaking crazy. 
I've tried Slack. I've tried, they named 10 other alternatives. They're like, I've tried Kanban. I've tried this. I've tried that. I've used everything. It's a nightmare. Like, right. This is costing me a fortune. Like, client deals are slipping by. It's like the worst part of my life. I tried a PA, but she stole all my money. <laughs> like, I tried a virtual assistant, but like, he, he ran off with my clients. Like, whatever. And you're like, wow, this person really cares, right? They're spending a fortune of either their attention or their resources to deal with this. They're super motivated. Now, obviously, as your product becomes more mainstream and established, not every customer is going to be this insanely motivated. Like as you become more mainstream, you become acceptable to less motivated customers. But when you're a brand new, unproven thing, certainly with businesses, you kind of need that crazy first customer. And, and they're so emotional. They're so like, ah! Like, I, so I'm looking for that emotional signal when I'm talking to them about their life. And I'm like, and then I'll ask them for a commitment to kind of prove that they're serious. So I was once talking to a uh, a woman who ran a, a, a creative agency and I had some software that I was thinking of, but I hadn't even built it. And to be honest, I hadn't even decided if I wanted to build it. I was still exploring like, is this even worth it? And we had like the perfect customer discovery conversation. We got along well. We were having a fun chat. She told me all about her uh, her workflow, her life, like the way they handled problems at their agency. She seemed like the perfect customer for me. I was like, listen, can we switch the mode of this conversation a little bit? I'm actually working on some software. You know, I know I said I wasn't going to pitch you anything, but it sounds like it would be perfect for you. If you wanted to take 10 minutes, I would love to tell you about it. And this is a good habit. Like often when you set up these customer conversations, you do it by saying like, I just want to learn. I just want to like, you can help me out so much by just telling me about your life and your work. Yep. And it's a bit dishonest to then switch into a sneaky pitch. So I, if I'm going to do that transition, I always ask permission. I'm like, hey, would it be cool? And if they're if I detect even the slightest discomfort in their face, yeah. they're like, I'm like, ah, forget about it. Forget about it. Like you've helped me out so much already. I really appreciate it. You gain nothing by pitching someone who doesn't want to hear it. But anyway, but she was like, yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Tell me. So we went through, I drew some wireframes. We like talked about it. She's like, this is so important. Like we need this. Like how soon can we have it? Now that sounds positive, right? Mm -hmm. But it's hypothetical. This is imaginary money. It means nothing. She's so, saying she might pay for it or she thinks she would pay for it. So she's predicting the future. Yeah, she's predicting the future. And I don't know. Am I going to bet my future on her guess at, at her future? No, no way. I want proof. And so the way you do that is by putting them into a buying decision, by asking them for something that hurts is the wrong word, but by, by asking them for something that they'd only give you if they're serious. And usually that's time, reputation, money, or if you're selling to big businesses, it's secrets about their buying process like their budgets, their procurement process, that sort of thing. So time, reputation, money. Reputation is usually intros or public testimonials. Money is obvious, pre-order, letter of intent, blah, blah, blah. Time is, is the interesting one. And it's also, it's the, the weakest, but it means more than nothing. So I was sitting there and I was thinking, what can I ask her for that's appropriate given the fact that I have nothing to show? I have no product yet that would prove whether she's a customer. So I thought about it for a second. I was like, listen, this thing's not ready yet. We're going to start development soon. It sounds like it's really important to you. What would you think about me coming in to your office this week, spending about two hours with the rest of your development team to figure out if this product would really solve this problem for them? The whole tone of the conversation changes, right? Because I'm now asking for something that matters. I'm not asking for words. I'm asking for her development team's time. That's cash money. And, and she gets real serious. She's like, ah, you know, and I can see she's like conflicted. And eventually she goes, yes, this is really important. When can you come in? And I'm like, okay, she's a customer, right? Yeah. No money had changed hands, but now I completely trust that she's will. And she may not like stuff happens, right? She may not convert in the end. Her life may like whatever. But like at this moment, I'm like, she was in a buying mindset and she made a buying decision. So I'm going to take her very, very seriously. So those are kind of the stages it goes through. It starts with this like early... Just tell me about your life. What are you doing and why? And then at a certain point, you've learned everything you can. You understand you've got a good mental model of how they make their decisions and their priorities. And then you can switch into this like, okay, what commitment can I ask for uh, to put them in a buying mindset to prove that like, yeah, they're actually going to follow through on this. And again, you're not tricking them. Sometimes people hear me say this and they're like, oh yeah, it's like a clever sales tactic. It's like, no, it's like the reverse of a clever sales tactic. You're intentionally trying to get rejected. Because yeah. you only want to spend your time with the people who really care. It's like anti-sales, you know? <laughs> You're like, please reject me. I'm giving you every opportunity to reject me. And like, if they give the slightest hint that they are rejecting you, you're just like, I'm out, right? Because like trying to push them, they will eventually say yes. 
It's like uh, if you're annoying enough in a bar, you can always get a fake phone number, but that doesn't actually help you. Like with a customer, you can always get them to say you're smart and your idea is brilliant, but that doesn't help you. Like if you're annoying enough, you can get people to lie to you, but like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you're only hurting yourself. I used, to, exactly. uh, I used to date a therapist and she was excellent pointing out all these subtle, almost unconscious reasons why we do things. And I think for a lot of founders and indie hackers, we say we're talking to people about our ideas in order to like learn and improve. But if you listen to what we're actually saying, we're just fishing for compliments. We just want someone to say something nice, <laughs> someone to say our idea is good. Uh, whereas you're, like you said, you're trying to get people to say no. You're trying to get like a definitive answer. You're trying to find out if there is some reason why this person isn't a customer, if there is some reason why your idea isn't important, or if there is some reason why they're not actually going to buy. Yeah. And the ones who are lukewarm, like I still write down their name and email. Like I keep track of them and I send them updates and I stay friendly. And maybe in six months, I'm like, hey, you know, that thing we talked about ages ago, it's out. People love it. If you want to take a look, it's there. Like you can always convert them later, but they're not going to be your first customer. Like your first customers are going to be frothing with emotion. So, you know, look for that. Let's talk about validating your idea by asking your, your customers questions. In your book, you talk about the fact that you should be terrified of at least one of the questions that you're asking the customers. What does that mean exactly? I mean, maybe this is only me, but sometimes there's questions that if you ask them and you get a certain answer, it just means you're going out of business. Like, for example, a common one is like, do you have the budget for this? <laughs> and, you know, obviously any salesperson listening to this would laugh at me. But as a non-salesperson, as a techie dude who was asking for like what I felt like was a lot of money at the time, it was terrifying to me. And so I was stuck in this song and dance of like these unending meetings. and. I was demoing better and better versions of products and they were giving me nicer and nicer compliments. And I was sort of like hoping it would magically turn into a sale and they never did. And I was like, ah, it, and then eventually uh, I was going through this uh, terrible infantile sales process with a company, uh, well, with MTV actually. And one of my buddies worked there and he came to me through the back channel and he's like, hey, you know why that deal didn't go through, right? And I was like, I do not know, but I would love to know. He told me and I was like, wow, I, I really screwed that up. huh?" And it was like something with legal and something with budgets and something mm -hmm. with music rights, whatever. It was like simple, just facts that were in the way. And I had always feared those things might be problems, but I, I like didn't want to mention them in case I spooked the customer. Whereas now I'm like, what's the scariest thing possible? Like what, what's the worst thing they could tell me? And then I'm going to try to actively search that out. Now there's an appropriate time for this stuff, right? Like if you've just met someone for the first time, it's difficult to be like, what's your budget? <laughs> uh, but also like that question's got to come at some point. Like you got to talk about pricing. You got to talk about money. You got to talk about the legal side. You got to talk about their boss. It's like, hey, it seems like this is really exciting for you, but uh, your boss would need to sign off on this too, right? And maybe legal and maybe tech and maybe procurement. And they're like, actually, not legal or procurement. This is a small enough purchase. It's under five grand. But yeah, my boss would need to see it and our tech guys. And you go, can I talk to them? That's the scary question in that moment. Will you introduce me? Because if they say no, it means the sale's over. That's a reputational ask. You're saying, will you risk your reputation by introducing me to your superiors? So that's the scary question. So I found that I have a natural compass where the thing I least want to ask is probably the most important question. And I try to, to hold myself accountable and like now it's easier for me, right? Because I've been doing it for, for 12 years or something. But for the first like six years, I was still terrified of these conversations every time I was having them. And so I came up with a couple little hacks to keep myself honest. I would write on a piece of paper, like my note-taking paper, I would write the three big things I wanted to learn about. So like, which tools do they use? What else have they tried and abandoned? And what are their thoughts on security? For example, whatever. Your questions will change depending on the stage of your company and where you're at. And then at the bottom, I would be like, if it goes well, what am I going to ask them for as a commitment? And one of the three like questions or things like somewhere on that had to be something I was terrified of. So it's like, I'm ready to ask for money and that's terrifying. Or I'm ready to ask for an introduction to the boss and that's terrifying. I'm ready to talk about budgets or legal or whatever. I need to learn about whatever. And that's good. It bubbles out those problems sooner and keeps, uh, keeps you on the straight and narrow. How do, you, how do you figure out what these scary questions can be? For you, I think you're experienced enough to just sort of intuitively say, hey, here's the question I'm afraid of asking. You know, I should ask this. <laughs> For a lot of newer founders, they're not really sure how to detect whether or not their idea is important or people are going to buy or people have the budget for it or even what the existential risk factor is. How can they figure that out? 
if it's a long sales process, you'll get the idea. Eventually, it's like the unspoken thing or it's what's holding you back from like closing the deal. In smaller sales processes, you'll still probably figure it out over time. It's just you figure it out across multiple different customers instead of just a single customer. But it's really, really helpful if you can get a, a sales advisor or a sales coach. They're really expensive, so you wouldn't want to hire one probably. But if you can swap favors with someone who is good at it, and they'll help you do postmortems on your sales meetings or your all your meetings, really. And ideally, someone who's good at like startup early stage, like a sales founder would be preferred because like salespeople are too focused on pitching and converting. Whereas what you need is someone who, who's like, well, you know, comfortable with the mom test stuff or the customer discovery stuff where they're like exploring and looking for the strong signal. Um, but what you do is you take good notes during the meetings. And then afterwards, you don't go that meeting went really well because that gives them no information. What you do is you talk them through the whole it, whole meeting, like the conversation. I said this, then they said this, then I said this, then they said this, then this happened, then this happened. I showed the demo. They mm. asked this. You just play by play back from your notes. And then it's like, what should I have done differently? Did I miss any important questions? What should my next question for them be? What's the most likely thing that's going to sink this sale? What do you think they didn't tell me? That like, There's a lot of clues like between the lines that someone who's a bit more experienced with this stuff will be able to immediately pick up. And like often, um, like when I'm advising teams, I'm advising a team right now and they're the best at this ever. And I'm able to be so helpful because every meeting they take total notes and every week they post all their notes of all the meetings they had that week. And I can just read through all their transcripts. And then I know exactly how, like what they're missing, the important questions. It's so, so helpful with a lot of other teams, like they don't give me that information. They're like ashamed to, to reveal the actual facts. They're just like, yeah, we talked to a customer, went really well. I'm sure they're going to convert soon. And it's like, well, I can't help you. So if you want to use like a sales helper effectively, you need to take notes and then you need to walk them through a play by play. And then they'll be able to help you with all this stuff. There's some indie hackers who are really strong at sales, like Louis Swiss. And um, there's, I'm sure there's a bunch of others. So there's people who will help you for free. And there's people you can swap favors with. Shout out to Louis Swiss. We'll see how many emails he gets <laughs> asking him for some uh, free help. He just writes such good stuff. Every time he writes an article about sales or marketing, I'm like, yeah, that guy's smart. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I talked to um, Heaton Shaw on the podcast last year. And one of his big rules of thumb is that you should solve problems related to your customers' top challenges. And this rang really true for me because I get a lot of emails pitching me products. And a lot of times, the products are actually useful. But they're just solving like problem number 55 or problem number 100 on my list of priorities. And so like these founders are actually solving my problems or they're solving problems that like quite frankly don't matter that much to me. And so I just don't end up using them. And I, I worry that so many people are starting companies where they're just solving problems <laughs> that don't matter that much. It strikes me as like a potential scary question. How do you ask a question to find out if the problem your product solves is even important to your customer? So that one you can't ask directly because they'll uh, lie to you. It's like a very lie-inducing question because you're putting people in the moment. It, like you're you're leading them there, like and they have nothing to benchmark it against. So you're like you're like how annoying is it that sometimes your shoes come untied or like how annoying is email or how annoying is traffic and people are like traffic is super annoying. Traffic is the worst part of my life and it's like oh have you thought about bicycling or switching jobs and they're like I would never do that. I love my car and it's like. So just asking how much a problem matters, to me, it, it means nothing. Uh, whenever I see that on a survey, I'm like, well, first off, surveys are a ridiculous waste of time. But like, you can't ask people how important the problems are. You need to look at their existing behaviors and not their aspirations, but what they're already doing. Say you're making like a, anything, like a music training app, and, and you're like, hey, you know, would you love to learn an instrument? Of course, everyone's going to say, yeah, I'd love to be more musical. Who wouldn't? But then it's like, well, what are you doing about it? Like, how much time are you currently spending on learning music? How much time have you spent the last five years? And if someone's like, well, I do nothing now. I kind of gave up. But like three years ago, I spent like 100 hours on YouTube tutorials. I bought a bunch of books. I was trying to learn this. I looked for a coach, but couldn't find one I trusted in my area. I travel a lot. It's hard to stay regular. You're like, ooh, actually, that's really interesting. Even though right now they're doing nothing, they've like, in their past, they've like devoted resources to this, right? So that's the main thing I look for. It's like, have they already done something about it? Even if that search resulted in failure, the fact that they attempted it like legitimately uh, means a lot to me. Like security, like all sorts of people have bad security, but like, well, how much have they looked into it? If they haven't looked into it at all, I'm skeptical, no matter how important they claim it is. Whereas if they're like, yeah, I tried all these things, but honestly, it's impossible. Like there's always a new phishing attack. There's always a new scam. It feels like whatever I do, I can't stay on top of it. It's a nightmare. 
you know, I did a ton of research and then I just gave up. It's like, ooh, that might be a customer. So that's like the non-consumer, but maybe a customer, as opposed to the non-consumer who really doesn't care and will never be a customer. So I, I, I watch what they're doing rather than listen to what they're saying, if at all possible. I love the point you made about seeing where they're diverting their resources to. Where are they spending their time? Where are they spending their money? I just wrote a post on ND Hackers about how to brainstorm good business ideas. The very first step where you're just trying to come up with an idea before you even talk to anybody. And a huge clue is like, well, what are companies, our customers already spending a ton of money on? That's a pretty huge clue that there's something that's valuable there, right? People don't spend a ton of money on things they don't care about. And so I love this idea of asking a question, you know, how much time have you spent trying to do this? How much money have you spent doing this? How much do you really care? That's, that's kind of a shortcut way of, of asking that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, any sort of attention, it doesn't have to be money. Money works. Sometimes money can backfire as well. It's such like, it's, it's so non-obvious. It's such a subtle thing to get to the truth. It's really like, it's a craft. It's something you learn about. Cause I, I was trying to sell some stuff to universities once. And, uh, during the talks, they're like, yeah, this would, uh, this would uh, do the job that we've currently got a team of four full-time people doing, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm doing the mental math and I'm like, oh, that's worth at least a quarter million a year. You know, and I sort of like, you know, public salaries and stuff, you can figure it out. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. So I'm only charging them 20 grand a year. So this is a no brainer. That's a 10x savings, right? But what I hadn't realized is like a public institution, they're not allowed to fire anyone. Everyone's unioned, everyone's protected. Right. Like the salaries are already an allocated budget and they mm. can't just switch salary budget into tool budget. Their tool budget is also already allocated and is much smaller. And the pitch of like, you get to fire four employees, well, that might be compelling to a business, is not compelling to a public institution. So that was a case where the money really misled me. And I thought that because I was saving them 230 grand per year, that they would like my software, when in fact, it was a total (laughs) non-starter. So there's this whole broader, this whole broader, I guess, range of questions where you're just trying to find out details like that about your customers. What do I not know about these people? What assumptions might I be having? In this particular case, your assumption was a university operates like a business. And at some point you discovered that that wasn't the case. How did you find, how did you find that out? Well, I went out of business was the (laughs) the main way. Now, (laughs) now what happens is uh, over time, you'll like, you'll find some of the people you're talking to you'll click with really well. And it's a phenomenon that I describe as like, they, they come around to your side of the table. It start it stops feeling like you're pitching them or interviewing them or learning about them. And it starts to feel like they're on your side, helping you to understand the rest of their company or the rest of their industry. The whole dynamic changes. Uh, and you feel like all the shields drop and you can just be like, listen, I am so confused I think we're onto something exciting, but I, I have no idea what we should be doing about this. And you feel like you can reveal that level of weakness and they don't see it as weakness. They see it as an opportunity to help. They're really on your side. They're almost like the, the customer co-founder. Yeah, I mean, this is what Steve Blank calls his early evangelists. Uh, they're rare, one in 20, one in 100. But when you find them, they're super precious. And that's when you can really fill in all these blanks about what's going wrong and all these weird little quirks of the industry. You can sometimes also get it a bit more directly by going to industry experts, journalists, investors, founders who have sold a company in this industry and have since quit. So they no longer have a competitive interest. Executives who were senior in your industry and have recently retired. All of these people are quite bored. And they're happy to share their hard-won expertise about the industry. So you can sit down with a person like that. Now, they're not a customer, right? So you don't value their feedback in terms of whether or not people are going to buy your product. But you very much value their feedback in terms of like, hey, how does this industry work? Like, what obstacles are going to be standing in my way? Like, if this was your business, what would you be most frightened by? What information would you be looking to gather most aggressively? And a couple conversations with an industry expert, I don't have nearly as much of them as I do with customers. Like I I try to talk to a few customers every week just to keep a steady drip of information coming in. Whereas I might talk to one or two industry experts at all, like just, you know, one time, just like do my due diligence. Um, And obviously you want to learn as much as you can from Google uh, first, because you don't want to seem like you're not respecting their time, but they understand even with an industry that seems simple, like online advertising, there's so much subtlety under the hood. That's just not written about anywhere. And you really need someone who's been in that industry for 10 or 20 years to kind of explain to you all the nuance. So they get that. And they're, they're like super happy to share their secret knowledge. Yeah, I see this a lot on indie hackers. People confuse talking to potential customers or people who might actually buy their product with talking to other founders or maybe experts. 
And it's like, that's not the same group of people. These people are not like, they're not your users. Unless they are. If you're selling to startup founders, that's fine. But if I'm talking to you, Rob, I'm going to be asking you for strategic advice. I'm going to be like, Rob, how do I talk to customers? What, like, you know, should I send surveys? Should I do whatever? I'm not going to be asking what's going on in your life or asking what you think about my landing page or whatever, because your opinion yeah. doesn't really matter on that. Yeah, I think it's crazy. Like, they're not your customers. What do you care what they think? It's like, unless you have a specific ask, like you're a non-native speaker and you're trying to make sure your, your like, language is sharp. You said something earlier that I wanted to ask you about, which is that you shouldn't send surveys, that surveys are ineffective. Number one, why are surveys ineffective? And number two, what are these other forms of communication that you should be using to talk to your customers? <laughs> Occasionally, someone makes the mistake of sending me a survey and asking me what I think about it or whether it's good questions. And, and like, I always just end up being like, don't use surveys. It makes me so mad. It's a real pet peeve. So the issue with surveys is that like, Anything that fits on a survey, someone else has already done the research about, and you could just Google it. Like any question you can ask on a survey could be Googled. Whereas the things that you can't ask on a survey, like decision-making process or like where they get nervous or scared about this area or like the emotional side or the decision-making side, that stuff does not come across at all in a survey. You're like, yeah, I'll leave a text entry field. That doesn't work. You get like random ideas and garbage. Like you can't evaluate. Are they customers? Are they fans? And this is a case where having a big audience works against you because you get a bunch of people who are just fans of yours trying to be helpful. And they're like, oh yeah, I'll go fill this in. And like now your data is all corrupted. It's like <laughs> a million pieces of bad data is not as good as one piece of good data, right? Like the, the, the bad data at scale is still bad data. It becomes worse it decays like it has negative value because you get more confidence in it as it, but like it's now statistically significant bad data that's not the way to run a business if you're tempted to survey it like google it get what you can from google and then like sit down with like five people in person i've honestly never seen a survey question that i thought was actually useful and a lot of people have sent me their surveys to like have me look over them maybe if you were like a super non native speaker and you really felt like you could not have a conversation uh, fluidly. I could imagine potentially like the survey being a fallback, but I I'm still not sure that meaningful insights would come out of that. I would rather that you look for representative customers in your native languages, learn from them, and then hope that those learnings apply. I think it's still bad, but that would be like a better signal. Is it really a survey signal? Is there really no use for surveys? Is that about like quantitative data, trying to figure out where your users are from, whether or not they so know how to code, stuff like that? After you have a bunch of users, sure. I think it's a fine tool for understanding your existing user base because that has given you a population that is unique and no one else has data on it. It is now the population of your user base. So like, yes, by all means to learn about your own user base, sure. But to do it to validate an idea or to check, learn about your customers who you don't yet have. I mean, I'm up for being proven wrong. If someone wants to send me their genius survey that like totally <laughs> fixed their business, like... I'll, I mean, I'll write an addition to the mom test and I'll add it in there because like that would be a breakthrough if you figured out how to do it. But I've never seen one. But yeah, for your own customers, absolutely. Like there's the product market fit survey, which like seems to be effective. It's got a lot of uh, data behind it. I've never used them in that way either. I have no opinion, but I could see it being useful. But I know they don't work for customer discovery. So on the subject of talking to your existing customers, let's say you have a business that's working pretty well. You have people using what you're building and you're just asking them for feedback. I had Sarah Hum on the podcast. She has a company called Canny, and it's a tool that's explicitly for requesting user feedback. Your customers can go, they can make suggestions and feature requests, they can file bug reports, they can upvote each other's feature requests, and then you're sort of left with dozens and dozens of these requests, and you have to figure out what to do with them. And it's probably not the right thing to just add them all to your to-do list and just work through them one by one. You gotta figure out which ones are good, which ones are bad. <laughs> How do you sort through this kind of customer data? You just need to ask one or two extra questions. It's like, why do you want this? What would this let you do that you can't do already? How often would you use this? How are you getting by now while this doesn't exist? That sort of thing. Uh, it's kind of like the, the customer discovery around the feature request. You're trying to get one level deeper. I think of it a bit like a metal detector. Like the feature request is the metal detector going beep, beep, beep. That is not the information. That shows you that there's information below ground. 
but you need to dig to get it. So to me, the, the feature request is the beep, beep, beep. But then the follow-up questions is how you dig underneath to get to the, the real insight. And what normally happens is the customers have a goal or a problem or a frustration, but they want to be helpful. So they take the extra jump and turn that goal or frustration into a feature request. And then they give you the feature request. I don't know why, but like that's what they do. And so then you need to reverse engineer that and go back from the feature request to the original goal or frustration. And then sometimes they're correct and you build exactly what they want. But other times, like, you know, you're the product visionary. Other times you can find a much better way to accomplish their goal or deal with their frustration. So even the appropriate response to getting feature requests is to just ask more questions and, and dig deeper. If possible. I feel like this is a place where indie hackers probably aren't struggling. Like It's like you kind of know what to do with feature requests. You're probably not just blindly building every feature request you get. Like You're probably already dealing with them somehow. I'm not sure I have massive value to add on that one. Uh, but something I would suggest is to find some excuse to have a couple customer conversations each week, like one or two, not a huge amount, two or three maybe, and find a way to make that time efficient. So there's a huge time cost to like organizing a meeting from scratch, like commuting and following up and taking notes and all that stuff, the calendar dance, huge time cost. It takes like half a day when you could have been programming and stuff. So what you want to do to make this sustainable, especially if you're still part-time, is you want to find moments in your week when you already have incidental contact with your potential customers or your current customers, and then use that opportunity to ask a couple more questions. And support tickets and feature requests work really well for this purpose. So it's not just that you can kind of like, you're a product person, you can kind of intuit what the feature request means, maybe like you get it, whatever. But like, if you can use that when the customer has already reached out to you, instead of you reaching out to them, and use that as a cheap and easy way to transition into a little learning conversation, you can get a lot of value with a very low time cost. So sometimes when I say like, yeah, have a couple customer conversations each week, people are horrified. They're like, oh my gosh, my schedule. But it's like, no, 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 find the ones that are in your life. And if people are like, there's zero customers in my life, I'm like, like, that's worrying, you know? Like, can you do something to put more customers in your life? Like when I was serving universities, instead of going to drink at a regular bar, I would go to drink at the university bars and specifically the ones that the professors went to. And it was just like, I was in contact with them. And it's like, I got to know a few of them. And it's like, oh, once your buddies with one professor, it's easy to talk to all the others. And it meant that like, I would go there once a week or something. And I would go to the pub and I'd have a couple pints and I'd talk to five or 10 professors or school administrators or whatever. And I was like, cool, that's my customer learning done for the week. Like, it doesn't need to be a huge task. Uh, Songkick, a London startup around live music, Every Friday, they threw a party and invited 50 of their most active users who were based in London to come to their office. And they hired a band. They had a ton of food and beer. And they just had their team mingle with customers. It's like, hey, just hang out with them. Have some beers Friday after lunch. Hang out. No more work. From that, the user experience team would be pulling people aside and being like, hey, if you're interested, like we'd love to show you the upcoming version of the app. Like We're going to be video recording it. Do you want to come see what's new? People are like, yeah. So boom, they're getting their user tests. They're getting their casual customer conversations. Like everyone's staying like empathetic with their users. Um, and that was a consumer app, but you can do it with business too. You can do the business lunch, uh, organize a meetup, go to meetups. Like there's so many ways. Like for example, meetups, I'll mention this one and then I'll, I'll be done with these little tactical tips. Everyone screws up meetups and events. They go to a meetup or event in pure sales mode and they go, Hello, I am Rob Fitzpatrick. I am an entrepreneur. I have a business. This is what my business does. What do you do? And the other person gives the same pitch. And it's like, great, good to meet you. It sounds like we could do business together. Let's exchange business cards and set up a meeting. And then they both ignore each other. Because that's like a zero value conversation for both sides. Whereas if you could, but that was like a potential customer, right? And you just wasted that opportunity. You wasted a conversation to try to set up a meeting. That is insane. You could have just asked what you wanted to ask in the meeting during that conversation. So my whole life changed when I started, well, not my whole life, but my whole like customer development life. When I started going to meetups and it's, I, I would I stop bringing business cards, right? I'm like, this is not for pitching. And someone would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I do this. I do this. And they'd give me their business card. And I wouldn't even tell them who I was. I'd just be like, hey, super weird question. How do you guys deal with email security? And like, boom, I'm in a discovery conversation. Like they're there to chat, right? And they love it because you're the first person who hasn't just tried to pitch them. And then after that, if it turns out they are relevant, you've actually had a real conversation, you've got a relationship started, then it's easy to have the meeting because you already know you're relevant and valuable to each other. Yep. So like, 
ah, if I can say, Eddie, just stop pitching. Like, pitching should always be the last thing you do, never the first thing you do. How would this look over email? Because I get a lot of emails from people who are like, hey, Cortland, here's what I'm building. Can I get your opinion? And I'm like, well, that sounds like a lot of time. (laughs) And on the flip side, sometimes people will be like, you know, hey, can we get like a quick lunch or a meeting? I'm like, well, that seems like even more time. Uh, What's the best way to sort of solicit someone's feedback or have start one of these customer conversations over email if you're trying to validate your idea it's super hard over email there's a section in the book i think it's chapter seven where it's it's like how do you get these meetings and it's like i kind of divide it into the cold approaches and the warm approaches like inbound and outbound let's say there's a bunch of tactical suggestions for how to like cold approach people and but it's deeply inefficient right you have to email like a hundred people to get one good conversation and that's a huge waste of your time. And it's ironic because the whole reason people do the emails is because they think it's going to be more efficient. And then they've sent 100 emails. They've been rejected 99 times. They're sad. They're depressed. They're crying. Like they've got no energy left to program. They're like, you know, their tear stained fingers are slipping <laughs> on the keyboard. It's like brutal to be rejected that many times in a row. It's like, even if you rationally know it doesn't matter, it's still like it, it gnaws at your soul. And so... Like I would much rather like when I talk to people, it's like they're like, who do I talk to? And they they always rank their leads by like potential or profitability or or how important they are. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. I think what you should do is you should rank your leads by friendliness and ease of contact. And then start with the friendliest ones first. And you have to know someone through your extended network who's representative of a customer, right? Someone your dad used to work with, someone who used to go to the same university as you, someone who used to work at the same company as you. If you start thinking about it, you can you can start to find these people you have a, a, some conversation with, some excuse to get a coffee or catch up or say hello. And you start with those friendly people who will talk to you for no reason at all. And as you start answering the obvious questions, this is like the low-hanging fruit. Like It would be crazy to go to an apple tree and be like, I sure want an apple. I'm going to get the one at the top first. You like start with the apples you can reach and then you work your way up, right? And so like start with the easy leads. Don't worry about the scalability because after five conversations, you're going to know a lot, a lot more than you knew at zero conversations. And some of those people you talk to will be like, well, like you're really authentic and you're trying to improve my work and my industry. Like, yeah, I know some more people who'd be into this. And it starts branching out from there. So I see people worry way too much about scaling their conversations, but like you don't need that many. And once you get started, more become available. So start with the easy ones, see what happens. Uh, And the last thing you want to do is start with your most important conversation. Do one of these crazy things. Like there's these stories of like sitting in some company's lobby for 20 days until they talk to you. Like what a waste of time. And that's your first conversation. You're definitely going to screw it up. Like you want to burn your friendly bridges first because they're more fireproof. Like friendly bridges don't burn, right? So start with those. Is there ever a point where you, you stop talking to customers? I know you said you're still doing two or three customer conversations a week. What if you feel like you've learned what you need to know? Your business is going well. It's growing. Should you still set aside time to talk to customers? And if so, what should you even be asking them about? I like it. you know. But one of the, the ultimate business hack is to choose customers who you like hanging out with. <laughs> like... I like hanging out with authors and now I'm building software for authors. And it's like, well, that's fun. I love talking to people about their books. It excites me. So like a lot of my friends like writing books and I find them interesting. So like, if you can do that, that's a a little life hack. Uh, It doesn't feel like such work, but like, if you can't do that, like there's times where you get into a deep slog where it's like, okay, like I've gained all the validation and all the evidence and all the learning I can. And I just need to like crack this hard technical problem. Like I need the 3d renderer. I need whatever the hardware to be better. Like it just has to happen. And you go into the tank for like six months or 12 months and you just like get it done. There's also some stuff like content marketing. You're like, okay, this business is going to grow via mailing list and blog. You don't want to be looking at your metrics every day or even every week. You want to be like, I'm going to commit to this strategy for at least three months. I'm going to hit it hard and then I'm going to reevaluate. Because like one week's worth of content marketing is as good as zero weeks worth of content marketing, right? You need to put enough wood behind that arrow uh, for it to do anything. Those like slogs, you just like commit to the plan and, and they're like more data can hurt you because it can like sway you when what you need to be doing is following through with your plan and seeing it to its conclusion. But then you reach the next plateau and then you look around and then you want to re-engage with customers. It's very hard to rebuild like the customer habit if you've let it slide for too long. You know, you get into different, I don't know, it's just a different way of working. So I like to keep it fresh. 
I just think it's like part of my weekly job, right? It's like stay in contact with a couple customers. It's like not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's like email a couple, be like, hey, how's it going? Just checking in on you. Don't like send an automated email to a thousand of them. Just like hand email a few of them. Be like, hey, just checking in or like, hey, I saw you send a support ticket or like, hey, thanks for your feature request or hey, I saw you made an Amazon review. What, whatever. I don't know. Stop making it so hard would be my thought. Like if you feel like it's miserable and hard, then like stop making yourself do the hard thing and start finding a way to make it easier and less miserable. But yeah, it's really good for your business if you can get into that habit. Yeah, you're making everything sound so easy and pleasant, but I guess it doesn't have to be hard or difficult. You can well, just... It, it's changing a different variable. Like everyone does it the hard way and tries to make themselves work harder and be braver. But I think that's really stupid. It's like better to like accept that you are lazy and cowardly <laughs> and then make it easy enough so that you can do it anyway. Like that's my whole strategy with life. Like with dating, with business, with customer conversations, with everything. Like, I'm not going to try to make myself more brave. I'm going to try to make the situation more easy. Bring it down to my level. We're going to have to have <laughs> another episode all about you giving dating advice, Rob. I wrote that book once, but I, I, I had beta readers and everything. It was like a fifth draft, and I just deleted the whole thing. I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm too ashamed to publish this. I have opinions, but I do not want to release them to the world. <laughs> well, listen, Rob, you shared a lot of great opinions, a lot of great advice so far in this episode. And you've written an entire book about this too. It's called The Mom Test. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. There's so much in there about how to talk to your customers, what questions to ask, and which situations. I recommend everybody go out and buy it. It's super short. It took me like two hours to read it. It's only like 120 pages or something Yeah, you crazy. could probably read it in the time it takes to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably could. The audience listening to this is, is full of first-time founders or people who want to become founders. Uh, you started numerous companies. You've done so much around customer conversations and sales. What tips would you leave them with if they're, if they're just getting started as indie hackers? I'll give uh, one about customer conversations and then one about uh, startups in general. So about customer conversations, um, think of it like a craft or a hands-on skill, like skateboarding or pottery, and be willing to fall on your ass a few times. It, it's not like uh, science or math. Like you, you're not going to, you can read it in the book and you'll get the framework and you'll know what you're trying to try, but you still got to go practice and <laughs> you're going to have some embarrassing moments and some whoopses and, you know, but you get good at saying sorry. And if you're respectful of people's time and you're like authentic and you, like everyone loves an entrepreneur, right? So you get a lot of benefit of the doubt because what you're trying to do is understand the worst part of their life and make it less bad. That's like a pretty noble goal. And I know there's exceptions. You might be trying to screw them out of money or abuse their gambling addictions or sell them fake drugs. There's like some evil businesses. But assuming you're like a good founder making a meaningful business, like you're probably trying to actually help people and build something that's good for their life. So that's cool. People like that. It gives you a lot of uh, forgiveness for your mistakes. Uh, man, I've, I've said such dumb things in meetings that should have been so offensive and people just laugh. They're like, I've even had people be like, look, I know what you're trying to do here. You're doing it wrong. Let me help you out. <laughs> like, let me tell you how this works. And they just like, it switches from a me trying to sell the meeting to mm -hmm. a them coaching me about how I should be trying to sell the meeting. People are really uh, kind hearted to entrepreneurs if, if you're trying to do good, good work. So yeah, be willing to make your mistakes. It's like skateboarding. You're going to fall over a bit, but you know, give it a try and find ways where you've made it easy enough. You've chosen the low hanging fruit and the friendly first contacts such that falling over isn't overly painful. You want to be able to make your early mistakes in a safe environment where it doesn't make you miserable or terrified. And then as you get more confident, you realize like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to get into bigger situations now, um, approach strangers and whatever. Then in general, for, um, for business and for startups, I think it's helpful to figure out what you want from the business in terms of your own life and the sort of life you want to lead because a lot of the like the silicon valley approach is like you sell your company and then life begins uh whereas for the indie hackers and like even like i mean that narrative though i tried to do that for my first company we went through yc we raised a bunch of money we had good customers we worked our butts off for four years we were miserable and we we're like but it's going to be worth it because we're going to get our private island and our helicopter and then we like failed anyway. And suddenly that like sacrificed four years didn't feel so good. It only feels good if you succeed. And so like, whereas since then I've tried to um, be like, okay, well, what's my day-to-day -day life that I want? Like, what are the activities I want to spend my time doing? So for example, I hate marketing. So I don't choose businesses that rely on marketing. I choose businesses that allow me to talk to customers I like and hang out with them and spend time with them. 
and build cool little products that don't need a big support team. And it's like, oh, that's great. And so now I really, and like nothing I need to show up to work for. Like I can do it from my home or do it from a cafe. Like you can make those choices. And I, I think I see way too many people focused on the exit and not enough focused on like, how many hours per day am I going to be spending on the activities I like versus the ones I don't like? And will I get to hang out with people I like and admire or people I'm cynical about? For me, that's been a huge uh, night and day shift in the way I chose my ideas. And everything's been a lot more fun and a lot more successful since uh, I started approaching it that way. But anyway, it's exciting. I wish you guys luck. And um, you can find all my email and everything at robfitz.com and links to the book. I'm Rob at Rob Fitz, and I'm on uh, Indie Hackers and always happy to answer questions about this stuff if you've got any. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for having me, Cortland. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you reached out to me and let me know. I am at C.S. Allen on Twitter. That's C-S-A-L-L-E-N. Feel free to just send me a tweet. Give me your feedback. Tell me your thoughts. Send me some suggestions as to who I should have on the show. I'm trying to mix it up and do a few more educational episodes like this one every month. In addition to, of course, three or so interviews every month and maybe some debates, some discussions. So again, that's at C.S. Allen on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. (music) 